Welcome and thanks for listening. My name is Christian Buckley, and you're listening to the Collab Talk podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with Brian DeBoy, Director of Industrial AI at Robisys, on the topic of smart factories and the impact that AI is having on the manufacturing industry and beyond. Let's get started. And welcome to another episode of the Collab Talk podcast, where we discuss the convergence of technology, business productivity, and collaboration culture. My guest today is Brian Deboy. Hello, Brian. Hi, Christian. The Director of Industrial AI at Rovisys. And we're talking today, I'm excited to dig into this. We're talking about smart factories and what those are, industrial AI, and AI's impact on the manufacturing industry. So maybe we could start with your background. It, tell us more about what you're doing at Roby Systems and, and a brief overview of smart factories and industrial AI, and then let's jump into the conversation. For sure. So my background, um, I've actually been with Robisys for about 23 years now. Um, so I've spent my whole professional career here. Um, Robisys is a system integrator. Uh, we were started back in 1989. So we've been around for 34, 35 years at this point. And we were started to target manufacturing and industrial customers. Um, as a system integrator, we typically are looking at all the systems that a customer has in place already. Um, and we are building solutions, you know, typically adding new technology, but leveraging those existing systems. Um, you know, rip and replace is not really a thing in the manufacturing world. Um, and so a lot of the equipment that we're working with is, you know, 20, 30 years old. And, um, you know, we're trying to to bring those manufacturing our clients uh, into the 21st century and really advance the state. And so my background here at Rovisys, I started out, I've got a computer science degree. Uh, and so I started out as a programmer, uh, working with all the information that comes up from that plant floor, um, and then kind of worked my way up. And then about Four years ago now, I had the opportunity. Um, we wanted to branch out into the AI space. We recognized that that was something that, while new to the manufacturing world, was already starting to be pretty established outside. And the manufacturing world, for good reason, that we could get into is typically five to seven years behind kind of the IT of world in terms of yep. adopting technology. Um, they're very risk averse. And so, um, but it felt like it was time around uh, 2019 to start to uh, move into that space. So. Um, I was um, appointed as the director of this new division within Rovisys. And so Rovisys, um, we have about 13 different vertical industries that we focus on, and that's everything from life science to chemicals to oil and gas to um, uh, materials manufacturers to consumer packaged goods manufacturers um, and, and everything in between. Um, and so uh, the cool thing about my job is, is I get to talk AI, advanced technologies, cloud, um, all of those types of things with all of those different types of customers. So in all of those different industries. Um, and so, you know, when you look at, I've got a pretty good perspective of this smart manufacturing thing, because when I started at Rovisys, um, it was in the year 2000. 
And the world of smart manufacturing was very different back then. Um, we were still on the tail end of the third industrial revolution. Um, and so really, you know, bringing silicon to the plant floor was a relatively new thing. And, and there was still lots of our customers that we were taking out pneumatic systems and, and, and relays and things like that to put in um, the controllers that were the state of the art at the time. Um, and so we were just starting in the early 2000s into this idea of making the, the factory smart. Um, and a big aspect of that was data. Um, and so bringing all of that data up from the plant floor, um, capturing all of that that data um, and doing what we call historizing that data. And that's where we're taking a time series database. Uh, in our world, they're called historians. And we're installing that on the plant floor and we're capturing all of the time series data, um, all that process data that comes off of all of that equipment on the plant floor. Now, when I started, we would put in new historians and they'd be, you know, a couple thousand tags. So a tag is a piece of, you know, one in individual data point off of a piece of equipment. And that was a good-sized historian. Nowadays, you know, historian projects are 100,000 tags because every piece of equipment on the plant floor is smart. Everything can give you 1,000 data points. And so all of that data we want to capture. And we and our customers now are looking at how can we get insights from that smart factory. You know, it's, it's so fascinating because, like, so when I, so about kind of the same time, so at early uh, 2000s, I joined a company, I don't know if you're familiar with, called E2Open where we were trying to automate you know, uh, that, again, within the high-tech manufacturing, the one sector of, of industrial um, manufacturing. But the we were looking at building more flexible collaborative systems in to help with like demand planning, which again, mm. is applicable across all the, the various industries. The idea that if we make a design change to this piece, what part of the manufacturing process, where does it halt? What does it take for us to make the change? What does that, and until we have that finished product that's on a shelf or on a truck on the way to a store, like what is that impact? So they could better go in and, and quantify what is the cost of this change? What is the impact to the, the, to the, to the supply chain of making this change? And so that was, it was fascinating to be there was as a product manager to help at the beginning of that process. So when you started to hear about IOT devices, more and more intelligent devices, these historian devices being uh, you know, added at all different aspects of that and creating the data. It's no wonder why one of the hottest jobs out there is around data science. Every industry, every organization is looking more closely at the collection of that data, massive amounts of data, mm -hmm. and trying to learn from that process. And so it's, it's, and with, with all of that, again, so I have a son that's on the data science side of things. He's a, the STEM kid in atmospheric sciences, and he's learned R and Python and, and is got, getting with the data science part of it. I'm like, I would not be surprised if that becomes the major part of your job going forward. But then I wasn't even thinking, I was thinking about applying human brains to go and look at this and review it. And there's still that work to be done, mm. but it's a massive opportunity for AI. Yes. go in and take that. That's right. And so, um, you know, if you look at 
you know, I always say that manufacturing has been doing big data before anyone was even talking about it because the volume of data coming off the plant floor really dwarfs anything that that you that you see in in practically any other industry. Um, you know, you talk about millions of data points. Well, I can get that out of one plant, and and most of our customers have you know maybe you know forty plants. So so there's there's just a huge volume of data coming out of the plant floor, and most customers at this point now in the game have recognized you know data is the new oil and all that. They've recognized that there is unlocked value in that data coming off the plant floor. And so what's interesting again, I've got this nice long arc, and and so. When I was starting my career, I'm in these customer meetings, and there was no such thing as a data scientist in the room. Now I go to customers, and they've got two or three data scientists in the room with me, and we're talking about the application of data and how we can solve problems on the plant floor and how we can leverage those insights coming from the plant floor as part of that. Now, as far as kind of his, the history of AI and how that's kind of applied um, in this industrial world, um, you know, when it started out, we were still seeing um, very simple applications of analytics and, and things like that and SQC and, and those types of analytics on the plant floor. But then you moved to the application of predictive. And so that was where you were taking these large volumes of data and you had to feed it into an ML model and train that ML model to predict a value. Now, one of the unique challenges, though, for manufacturing compared to, say, IT, is that there's just not all the data on the plant floor is dirty. Um, in in that there you have data outages, so you've got gaps in data, you've got sensors that are misreading, and this is just I mean that's just a Tuesday, like that's just normal that you've got problems with the data, and so data cleansing becomes a very very difficult problem that is kind of unique to the manufacturing world. But once we do that and we go through that process and data correlation, the data is very siloed on the plant floor um, for good reason. Um, and so once we go through that process and we can finally build those data sets, we can build those predictive models. And so that was kind of the state of the art for the last probably 10 years or so was that ability to predict something. And that what you're predicting could be you know, how many days until this piece of equipment is going to fail? So that's kind of the predictive maintenance type of thing, mm -hmm. or it can be predictive quality. Um, what's the final value? What's the final quality of this batch going to be? Um, we did that for a drywall manufacturer, right, where we used a computer vision system to look at the sheets of drywall. And based on some of the factors that they the computer vision system could see, we could actually, with very high reliability, we could predict what the final quality of that sheet of drywall could be. And in the past, the state of the art was to take a sample from that drywall, which was a destructive test, and send it off to the quality lab. You're still making product while you're waiting for quality to come back. And the quality could come back an hour or two later. And in the in the quality lab may come back and say, hey, guys, you're making garbage. You're making, you're making scrap, and you've been making it for the last two hours. So that ability for us to predict what the final quality will be and then have an operator be able to take an action, you know, an action on that right away and and improve the quality, make, you know, turn some dials and make a better piece of drywall and reduce that that feedback loop from hours to minutes, that's, I mean, that's a huge savings. That's a massive savings. That's where you get into one and two digit percent ROI improvements and, and percent improvements on yield and on scrap. And, and that's, those are big, big, those are million dollar projects. So that's been the state of the art. One of the things I want to talk about today, we can get into later, is then where it's going. And that's this application of what we're calling autonomous AI. So that's where you're not just predicting a value, but you're training a neural network. We call it a brain if it's been trained through this particular technique. You're training a brain to be able to actually make a decision. 
And that ultimately is what our customers want the AI to do. They don't want it just to be able to predict a value. It, you still have, then have to have a expert that can do something with that prediction. They want the expertise to actually be baked into the uh, neural network, and we can get into that. Now, is it also helping with the, you, you talked about, you know, the 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 data cleanup, like that part of it. I mean, this is something that, again, in the IT world, people recognize that, you know, when you, uh, I would always comment that you go and you see the people that are really good at using like Power BI and that they can just, it, it's impressive that they can go in and manipulate and show you these things, these visual, build these on the fly data visualizations. What they don't show you is how much work it takes to get the raw data to be able to do that in the first place. There's a huge step in the process that, you know, of gathering the raw data, uh, of doing the data cleanup. I, and I used to always comment too, when I got into the, the Microsoft world in the, in the early 2000s, um, that it's like, where did all the DBAs go? Where are all these, you know, like that, I came from that world in the Unix and the IBM world, like DBAs all over the place. Like I relied on them to go and clean that stuff up. And I just, you didn't see that role a lot. You're starting to see these people under different different titles, but again, kind of step back into the light. And yeah, maybe like a data governance type of title or something like that. But right. and, and you know, there's a natural tension there, and that's what I try to explain to customers because they get real excited about wanting to build data warehouses and all that. And I and we we're doing that, and we're we're on board to do that. But one of the challenges that you run into is there's a tension there between kind of the wild west where everyone can kind of get to the data and add, and augment the data and add to the data and, and pull from their own data source and and whatever. And, and the great thing there is, is you get that kind of democratized data scientists and 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 um, power users who can really do some really cool things and skunk work projects where they're they're building some really great things. But you've lost all control of, of the data. Um, you, the data is very dirty. Um, you're not sure how the data even correlates. You're not even sure that you can trust the data. The opposite side of that spectrum, though, is a data warehouse that is very, very locked down, where there's a very small group of people who can ever make changes to it. If you need one more column added, you're going through a whole approval process to get that one column added. And there's so it is a whole spectrum there between those two things. And you know, I've it's worked just, in that world. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's just the nature of it. I mean, there's no getting around it, but that is kind of um, what we have to deal with. And then you mix into that, like I said, there's some very unique um, situations with data coming from the plant floor. Um, and, you know, it, like you said, it's kind of that dirty secret that people don't talk about. It's kind of under that ETL kind of banner, extract, transform, load. But um, there's a lot of work that has to be done to clean that data up. And so there are AI vendors in our space too, in that plant floor manufacturing space. And they come in and there's a lot of hand-waving they do around the data cleansing. <laughs> they skip right to the ML building and I'm like, well, wait a minute here. <laughs> there was a big step that you missed there in the middle where you got that clean data and where did you get that and how did you get that? And it, it turns out they typically don't have a good plan to, to get that data. So um, that was one of the things that we felt like we were in a unique position to kind of bring some clarity and break through some of that hype that our customers were hearing from those AI vendors and say, okay, look guys, that's a great goal. Let's get to that AI future, but there's some work that has to be done to be able to get there. Yeah. Well, and that's, uh, I think you made the point again, it's, it's easy to gloss over that factor. Everybody wants to jump to that next step, but I don't know. I mean, what, so this is an important thing. Maybe we can talk about this for a minute before we kind of jump to the next, the, the future part of it. But 
So how do you approach that with the customer? So what do they need to put in place to have in place? Like, what are your recommendations for that data cleanup process that get from gathering to clean up before you move on to presentation layer? Well, so I think we have kind of a, a unique approach to it and that's the idea. So every, virtually every customer that we talk to, we come in and they're envisioning a, a massive data warehouse that combines their data from the IT system and their plant floor systems. Um, everything's correlated, everything's clean, um, one source of truth for all of that data. Um, and they kind of, they're starting from that and working backwards. They're saying, let's build this thing. The problem with that is, is that, and part of it is just because the volume of data from the plant floor, um, there's no shortage of data. I can give you all the data. I could overwhelm, in fact, any data warehouse system, any relational system with the, the because the frequency that we're recording data at, we're oftentimes recording data every second, every couple seconds on the plant floor. So we right. can overwhelm any system. So what we do is we kind of work differently and we say, um, what are the use cases? What are the problems that you're trying to solve? What are the questions that you're trying to solve? And then let's work backwards and figure out what those sources of data are. And then, then we can figure out what kind of cleansing we need to do and what kind of ETL we need to do to get to that end state. Um, it's not so much, I wanna capture everything. In fact, I, you know, I've been in those meetings where someone from IT who doesn't really understand the data coming from the plant floor says, well, just give me everything. And I do some quick back of the napkin math. I'm like, this is what I can give you. <laughs> now, this is what your Azure bill is gonna be every month. <laughs> So, um, you know, I, I, so I'm like, so let's instead, let's work on what are you trying to see? Um, there are different, the other thing that we can do on the plant floor is that we can look at data at different resolutions. Um, one of the interesting things about these time series databases is that they can do something called interpolation. So they can look at data at the lowest frequency it was recorded at, or they can, they can actually look at it at minute, 15 minute, 30 minute, they can go all the way up infinitely. Um, we have complete flexibility there. And so we can look at different resolutions. We can say, well, do you really need the second data or does the, the second level data maybe stay where it's at? And we can just pull up 15 minute data or something like that. Are you just building a dashboard? You know, then it's overkill what you're gonna try to do and you're gonna spend a lot of money to, to get to that. So we're always trying to start with use cases and then work backwards from there. Okay. So what what is like the, the the future? Where is this this going? Uh, yeah. Again, you're you're talking going and talking to customers. Sell me on uh, the vision of the future that you go in and talk with the client about about what's possible. I love talking about the. I mean, a lot of what I do is around technology. Is talk to people, sell them on the art of what's possible. Then there's the whole mess of well. We have to understand where you are today. Here's what's possible in the future. And uh, any consulting company will say, then there's the path to get there. That's right. That, you know, and and what steps need to take and and transformation can be hard. Yeah. But what what is that future look? What where are we moving? Well, and so we're really excited about this because it's relatively new. Um, and that's this autonomous AI. And so the idea there is is that up to this point, like I outlined. The last 10 or so years in the industrial space has been about predicting a value. And that's been great and that's been valuable, but ultimately those predictive ML models can predict one value. And it, what you do with that is up to you and whether or not you act on that is up to you. And what action to take is up to you to decide. It's gonna give you a prediction and then you gotta figure out what to do with that prediction. And all the ROI, this is one of the things I emphasize to my customers, all the ROI in the manufacturing space 
with this AI project comes from what action do you take based on that decision? Everything you did before that is a giant science experiment. But if nobody, if a supervisor, if an operator, if nobody is taking any action based on that prediction that you're showing them on the screen, then it was all for naught. You got zero ROI out of the whole thing. So what our customers really want is they want a system that captures the expertise of their existing best operators, um, their best supervisors, the people who run the plant best, captures that expertise and puts it into um, a, an ML brain and then looks at the state of the system. We can build these brains so that we hook them into the, the control system and they can actually look at the state of the system and say, based on everything I'm seeing, this is the best decision. This is the most optimal thing that you can do. This is the next best action that you can take. And the way that we're doing that is, is we're leveraging a technology called deep reinforcement learning. So, so if, if any of your listeners aren't familiar with that, that came out of DeepMind, which was a Google spinoff, and it it um, kind of came uh, into the open in 2016, and that was when they they released AlphaGo. So this was a program that was built to play Go, and it had taught itself to play Go by playing against itself thousands, hundreds of thousands of times, and it had taught itself to be a master Go player, and it beat our best grandmaster. His name was Lisa Dahl, and it beat him four to one in 2016. When that happened, that sent shockwaves through. And then they went on to build Alpha Zero, and that was to play chess, and it beat our best chess grandmasters. Then it beat our best chess software. Then they went on to build Alpha Star, and that played StarCraft and beat our best StarCraft players. Can I pause, Brian? Yeah. As long, on that list of games that it's learning, thermonuclear war is not an option, <laughs> is that correct? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, oh, that, See, I always I always felt like don't design that into the program so that it doesn't go and find that. We you don't know that movie War Games, that movie yeah. War Games with Matthew Broderick. That was the movie when because that came out when I was a kid. That was the movie that made me want to be a programmer. I was that was oh, well, okay. that was the movie. So I think about that a lot. Yes, but. Um, so so they were on to something. And so then there were, um, you know, there was some interest in, okay, that's great to play games with it, but now how can we apply it in the real world? And so there was a movement to, um, a small movement to start to research into applying it to the industrial space. Um, and Microsoft got into that for a while. Now they've since divested that. But, um, and so there's, you know, and so that's what we have done is, is we've taken all of that research. Um, we're, we've partnered with some, some vendors in this space that have offerings that leverage deep reinforcement learning to build these autonomous AI brains. Now, the reason why we don't just call it a DRL brain, we call it an autonomous AI, is that our approach to it is much broader than DRL. So DRL is necessary, but it's not sufficient. It's not the whole story. Um, so there's other aspects to it. One of those other aspects is what we call machine teaching. So it's very tempting. DRL learns by doing, not by data. So you have to hook it up to some kind of a simulator. So it's very tempting to just say, well, let's just hook up the DRL with no a priori knowledge. Let's just hook it up to the simulator and let's see what it figures out. Well, the challenge with that is, is that it may take a thousand human years before it ever converges on a solution, or it may never actually converge on a solution. But it's also not the way that we would teach a human operator to do it. If you were to if it was a human operator's first day on the plant, you're going to say, okay, you're going to pull this lever, you're going to look for here, and you're going to you know, adjust this slider, and you're going to look out and see if the flame looks like this or like this, and then you're going to do this. That's how you would teach a human operator. So machine teaching does goes through that same process and teaches um, 
you know, that's where we're baking in the expertise from all of these subject matter experts, the SMEs. That's where we're baking all of that in. And so we're giving the DRL the best kind of running start at it. And then it'll figure out plenty of optimizations around that. But you're giving it that machine teaching is where you're capturing that expertise. So I've got a question for you. So maybe you'll see where I'm going with this. But uh, so when my my first foray into this space and didn't know to call it AI. In fact, uh, you know, a startup that I co-founded, we built, we didn't know what we built was now what would be referred to as a social graph. We were essentially mm. doing that around project management, pattern recognition and project activities and over time. And we were, we partnered with uh, companies that no longer e exist, uh, but we, uh, so we we built a, a solution that we called, uh, um, uh, um, uh, well, it was the, the company was called Cosis was was quality object oriented software engineering systems, and and our our product which doesn't doesn't matter because it never came to fruition. But we sold off aspects of it to Rational Software, and it got mm -hmm. deployed in a couple companies and things and doing. But part of it was that you know in the project mat tracking world, pattern recognition was that where you learn is when you apply. So you change the baseline, you apply. You know, so it's not just about getting. Here's the recommendation. Um, we were we were looking at studying of okay, if we don't make the change that's recommended, um, and it goes back to the kind of the project management 101 is that you know the 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 the, the longer that it takes to make a change, the more expensive the change takes. And so by tracking that, you know that within the project world, um, if you catch a mistake closer to delivery of that, how expensive it is to go back and do that. Um, but are you tracking this part of this? Is it learning from by changing the baseline? So if it makes recommendations, how much of the recommendations are you actually following? So it, you know, are you going and making those changes? And are you then predicting if we had not been the, made the changes versus the changes we made and to, to kind of prove itself that this was the correct prediction? I mean, is that is that part of it that it, it requires changes to be able to track the success rate of the product. Well, there's kind of two aspects to that. So so one of the key key insights there is is that um is remember that this learns by doing not by data. So we already have a simulation of the part of the process that it's going to be working on. So we don't even have to put it into production to see what this, the improvement's going to be because you know, we can see in the simulator. In fact, that's part of the validation process is, 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 is it outperforming? Is it performing at least as well as the human who's doing this or is it outperforming them? Um, but yes, certainly once we put it into production, um, just to kind of prove that it was all worthwhile, we absolutely are tracking the decisions it made and how, you know, versus what, you know, the typical baseline is that they've been seeing over the last couple of years. Here's with this, you know, with uh, this system in place, how much better it's performing. Now, one of the other keys there though, is that we never roll this system out into what's called direct control right at the beginning. So we always roll the system out as a decision support system. So it's actually telling the operator what action to take, but it is still up to the human being to take that action. Um, now, the difference is though, is they don't have to be an expert. <laughs> they just have to be someone who knows to press a button and it will tell you, okay, turn this dial up by, you know, two degrees and you're going to get this, you know, this much more efficiency out of it. Um, that's the type of insight that only an expert operator who really knows how to kind of ride that line, only they would ever know, oh, at this point in the process, if you were to crank it up two degrees, you're going to get you know, a half a percent better that no one would, a one year, two year operator is not going to know to do that. And right. so that's the type of insights. Now, once it's been in de decision support for, 
you know, three to six months or something like that, and everyone agrees that it is operating correctly and it's it's taking the right actions, then we look at moving it into direct control. But again, and I know that sounds scary to a lot of customers, but remember, all it can do is what the human could do. It's still limited by what the control system will let you do. The control system still has interlocks and things like that that'll stop you from doing something crazy. So it can only yeah. turn a dial and we can actually restrict it so it can't even turn the dial as far as a human could have turned it. So right. we have those those uh, protections built in. Well, then I'm thinking other things too. It's It's not that it's doing things, I know the name, autonomous. It's not that it's necessarily doing things. It might be saying like, hey, we're seeing a degradation in these IoT devices and they need to be swapped out today because we predict it's going to fail in the next 12 to 24 hours. Let's go swap it out now so we don't have that that downtime, that loss. Right. Although it's interesting, that would be more of like an application to kind of maintenance and things like that. But what we actually, where we're focused is on operations. So we're actually putting it in and saying, this is the process. Let's simulate this process and let's have it see if it can operate this equipment better. Um, so as an example, I was up talking to a vinyl manufacturer and so they extrude vinyl. And one of the things that they know is happening, especially with their newer operators, is that they are over extruding. They're basically giving away more vinyl to their customers than, I mean, it's it's on spec, but it, they're, you know, it's too thick. And so they talk about heavy, heavy vinyl and they're putting out too much vinyl. Yeah. So that's yeah. something that, but again, to make an adjustment there, you're not just adjusting, you know, how much vinyl's extruded. That's not even how the machine works. You're you're adjusting rollers that are stretching it. You're adjusting, making slight temperature adjustments. And every adjustment you make to one piece of the process has a downstream effect and has a, a domino effect on other parts of the process. So for instance, if you turn up the RPMs to stretch the vinyl ever so slightly, it's gonna increase the temperature. So you've gotta make a, an accommodation elsewhere in the process so that you don't melt the vinyl. So a expert operator, and so I was talking with the plant manager, he said, I've got two expert level operators that, that can run this extrusion line as best as anyone, and they both have done it for over a decade. But he said, they're both five years from retirement. He's like, I got no bench. I've got one and two year operators. I've got heavy turnover in that position. People don't want to do these jobs. And he's like, I've got to capture the expertise, all of those tricks that I was just describing. He's got to capture all of that into this brain so that it knows how to do that and can instruct a one or two year guy on how to make those adjustments to, to be able to continue to operate. It was interesting because we talked to him about ROI, like financial ROI. And he's like, yeah, you know, and that's all great. But he's like, for me, you know, he, for him, it was almost existential. Like if I want to make vinyl, at the same level of quality that I've been making it, I can't just keep running these two guys into the ground. Like I've got to be able to to extract that expertise from their head. So so that that's that whole thing about that dance between AI and you know the fear of putting people out of work and and replacing humans. That's that whole thing is is that for a lot of our customers, it's not that you know it's not that they don't want those people. They can't find people, and they can't get them to stay. And in the and no one wants to stay ten years in that position and become an expert vinyl extruder. It just doesn't. It's just not the world we live in anymore. So we've got to capture that expertise that exists before those people walk out the door, and and bake it into these systems. You know, there there's a I mean, there's that the fear versus reality. I mean, we we hear this all the time around uh, AI. Uh, it concerns that the implementation of any of this will lead to these massive job losses. Um, especially within the manufacturing sector. I mean, we hear that politicians are talking about that. And and it, is this keeping us from 
uh, uh, building back any kind of a manufacturing sector within the U.S. again. Uh, I mean, how do you perceive that sentiment? I mean, because I, I, I look at I say, you know, this could actually bring back manufacturing to the U.S. Um, at a much more highly efficient place where right. it becomes so efficient that it cuts into the, you know, you can't just throw people at it. Exactly. Right. And, and you know, those countries that we're often that those politicians are often bringing up typically have lots and lots of people. And so that's what they're typically doing is, is they're throwing people at those at those problems. But the reality of it is, is that even within the history of manufacturing in the United States, we've been applying automation for the last 30 plus years, right? So it used to be, I mean, if you look at those pictures of old factories, it used to be just massive numbers of people all shoulder to shoulder doing the processes by by hand. And so we've been applying automation all this time. Um, and, you know, and so it's just that, it's just the same evolution of that. It's just smarter and smarter automation is all that we're doing. But, you know, the thing is, is that I envision a future like you said, because we're not just going to throw people at it, where our factories and our manufacturing facilities in the United States run so efficiently, runs with so little staff and with such high levels of automation and can produce such high quality. And what those people then are doing are high value tasks. Again, there's a reason why that my clients can't keep people in these operator positions because it's not a high, it's not a high value thing it's not a super rewarding job you know you're inspecting something or you're moving something from this bin to this bin i mean these are not high value jobs and these are not the jobs that people want to do for their lifetime so um you know again we're we're automating that because they can't find people to do it and so i i envision then that those people are are going to move into higher value jobs within the organization jobs that are rewarding um building excel reports is not a particularly rewarding job for somebody, right? If I can automate that, they can move on to doing more high value work. Um, and then the classic example, and it's been brought up a lot, but you know, there were things, there were elevator operators, there were lamp lighters, street lamp lighters. These were actual jobs and no one is lamenting the loss of elevator operators. No one's saying that the world is is worse off because we don't have street light lamp uh, lighters. Like, so this is a natural evolution of these things, and we want to move those people into more rewarding and, and fulfilling jobs and higher paying jobs. Yeah, the the other side of this, the other thing that I hear a lot about, you know, you bring up AI, it's the uh, the ethical discussions, the questions about that. And I think you can scare people by saying autonomous. Uh, autonomous AI is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So what, what does that actually mean? I, I, so I, I don't know if you get into that with concerns from clients or if there's, I, I'm sure there's got to be, you know, discussions within the industry around ethical AI. So how does that kind of land? I mean, what are, yeah, what are some so, of the considerations? Yeah, ethical AI. So we're not, you know, most of the problems we're solving are operational problems. So we we are just now, again, Microsoft, or manufacturing is always behind. Um, so we're just now starting to look into generative AI and chat GPT and some of the knowledge type of problems that that can solve. But when you're talking about operational problems, typically, the ethics is really about the loss of of life or you know injury, loss of property. If the you know if you were to blow up the plant, like that you know that's kind of what you're what you're looking at. The good news there is is that again we've already had those protections built into the control systems for decades now. Um, we have things called interlocks where you can't you know the system will literally block you from opening a valve if if something else is you know if a, a, um, you know, a, a flame is still lit over here. You can't open this valve. I mean, the system will block you from making those types of things. And 
those systems all still exist. Those aren't going any <clears throat> anywhere. That's the kind of the lowest level of automation, and that's not going anywhere. So we can't do anything that a human operator couldn't have done all this time. And in fact, like I said, we can actually restrict the AI to to a much smaller action space than even a human operator ever could have done. I, and I mean, for the most part, you know, we're, we're, I'm thankful that in the history of manufacturing, there's not a lot of scenarios that you can think of where a rogue operator went and you know did something really horrible to try to intend sabotage uh, the plant, but that's just not something that that our systems can do. So in a lot of ways, we're actually bringing a lot more safety uh, to that space. And the other thing is, is that some of these um, processes that we're automating are not safe for humans to be around. Um, if you've ever been right. in a steel mill, right. um, yeah. if you've be ever been, some of these processes are violent. They're they're amazing, but they are violent, and and we don't want humans around them. So if we can automate those processes and bring um, and bring those operators into a safe safer place and let the AI do those types of things, that's that's a better outcome. No, I tell you, for people that are interested too, you've got the whole ASMR uh, video series on YouTube of of uh, industrial manufacturing facilities and watching the the glowing hot you know metal sheets on rollers moving and it's it's uh it's very beautiful to watch and uh glad i'm not there in person for it no you know and i was joking earlier too about you know it's like uh, well one way to make it more secure is don't pre-program in global thermonuclear wars <laughs> in the menu if it's not the drop down AI is not going to select from that, but there's something to be said around. So I'm a big, I'm a governance, IT governance guy and corporate governance is that it's all about putting guardrails into this. So I think that it's one of the, the positive things about as kind of the beginning, the growth over the last four or five years, really as AI has become to the forefront, uh, it, it has been reassuring that the ethical considerations is so much at the front of the discussion too. You know, organizations that are going in, I think people are demanding this of their companies too, that, hey, we need to have a position on these things. And, uh, you know, it, it, even though a lot of it is not applicable to what we're discussing here and the controls are in place, but that's part of governance. You have the guardrails, but we have the discussion. So as things change, as it moves forward, uh, as newer technology comes in, but we're constantly going back and reflecting, are we still answering this? Are, is what we said about the ethical implications of the technology, has it changed or has it remained the, the same? Uh, and so that's actually been positive. Um, I, you know, it, it's funny, be, being in tech for over 30 years and seeing some of the cycles around this, um, you know, moving to the, you know, it's old enough, uh, you know, in the early 90s to see moving away uh, from the 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 uh, mainframe to the personal computer, that movement, and, uh, uh, you know, moving to these, these smarter devices. And then the fear of the cloud, everything was right. so fear that jobs are going with the cloud. And, and AI is as big as either of those two waves, if not even bigger than that. Um, so the fact that we're discussing these things, I think a lot of it is <clears throat> personally, I think a lot of it is overhyped, the, you know, mm -hmm. the ethical <laughs> side of that. Um, yeah. Again, we're not building the menu items in there to to destroy the, the, the planet. Right. Um, 
and it is a much more controlled, but we still should be thoughtful about that. I think so too. I mean, yeah, I mean, we don't want to make, we don't make, want to make dumb decisions. We want to be very deliberate about all the decisions that we're making here. But yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think if you've been around in this industry long enough, you, you've heard so many of those kind of predictions and those doomsday predictions that you start to be like, eh, I think we're okay. And, and I think too, like I have enough I'm close enough to it and I can see the limitations of these things too, right? Like I, I can see it make really dumb decisions. Like early on in the training process, you'll see it make really dumb decisions that a human wouldn't even make. And and it just, it, it shows you how it really humbles you in terms of the capabilities of this technology. It's very cool. It's very, it's amazing what it can do once it's fully trained and operational, but it's it can only operate within the scope of what that simulator could ever simulate, right? So, so if, if if I didn't build it into the simulator, it doesn't even know that that thing exists. It's not creative and it it can find novel ways to solve problems, but again, only within the space of what I what the simulator was ever able to do. That was its entire world. Um, similarly, with the generative AI, like, can it generate text to fool you into thinking it was generated by a human? Yes, in certain circumstances, although I've seen some text that's generated that's like, this is clearly Garbage. not. <laughs> right. Right. So, right. So, uh, look, I'm on that side of the world, uh, you know, on the business, on the marketing side. And and yeah, it's, well, that's why you, you started, I, I love that too, that you, you started to see the memes out there of the generative AI hype cycle, people getting excited. And then they were like, this is garbage. And then they started to realize, oh, here's how I actually apply it. It's yes. back, back up. Yes, and it so. becomes a tool to advance human right. civilization. And that's what I welcome. You know, one of my one of my personal soapboxes is that I believe manufacturing is the biggest lever that we can pull to increase the prosperity of everyone. And so when you are, so I love my job because I'm so close to it and I'm actually doing that. I'm helping these manufacturing customers be able to produce faster, cheaper, higher quality at a lower cost. And that makes everyone wealthier. If you can go out and, and you can go to everywhere from a high-end grocery store to a Walmart, and you can get the same products from the same brand names, and everyone has access to that high quality, those high quality goods. And I mean, that's that makes everyone wealthier. And so that's that's a big thing for me. I love what I do, and I love this world of manufacturing because of it. Yeah, it's a great space. Uh, it, it it's fascinating. There's so much going on. I, again, it's I I spent. A, a chunk of my probably about a quarter of my career in the manufacturing sector just a lot going on there so well brian really appreciate your time and your insights this is a again fascinating topic uh, folks that want to find out more about this where where do you generally point them yeah, so if you go to Rovisys, R-O-V as in Victor, I-S-Y-S, rovisys.com forward slash AI, that'll take you to our AI landing page. And then they can always find me on LinkedIn. It's Brian, B-R-Y-A-N, Deboy, D-E-B-O-I-S, and look me up there and connect with me. And I'm always happy to chat with anyone. Well, thanks a lot for your time, Brian. Thanks, Christian. You've been listening to the Collab Talk podcast. New episodes are published on most Fridays, and you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and most other podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.